0: Please welcome to the show, Debbie Bryan. And I just remember thinking, I'm going to die. I'm literally, I'm going to die. There's nowhere for me to go. And then I thought, no, I'm not going. I'm not dying. I'm not leaving my boys. They're not old enough. They think that they're old enough. Jake thinks he's old enough and he's not, and I'm not going. And I randomly took two steps and those two steps saved my life. So I remember the car hitting me and I was still stood. So even though I just felt like I was stood on ice, my leg just felt really not working. Natural. The next day the surgeon came, he said, right. We're going to be able to fix the leg, but you're not going to be able to use your leg.
1: What I find most fascinating is obviously you do have a background in sales. Even hearing that story, it was like you were negotiating with the surgeon. Yeah. You're like, no, 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 <laughs> what's no, that's the next it option? Yet.
0: I was just like, I was lucky. I actually thought I was the luckiest person in the world. I kind of vowed I wouldn't become a workaholic again. I wouldn't put all my focus onto the business. I just believed that I could get better.
1: Welcome to Inspired by, the show that brings you inspiring stories from inspiring entrepreneurs with a twist. Now, I believe that every successful entrepreneur and celebrity on this planet has an inspiring story, and they have stories that they haven't yet told. Not because they don't want to tell the story, but because they haven't been asked the right questions. So, my job on the show is to ask the real questions so that you get the real answers. Now, with that in mind, let's get started. Welcome back to inspired by. Now today's guest is someone who is an expert in resilience and overcoming adversity. Now, why you might be asking? Well, this next guest I'm really excited to introduce you to because she is someone who has unfortunately experienced a life-threatening accident in the past and was told she'd be wheelchair-bound for the rest of her life. Now, not only did she overcome that by healing herself, she then took on the mission to cycle 360 kilometers across India. Yes, she's incredible. Please welcome to the show. Debbie Bryan. Debbie, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me onto the show. It's amazing. Every time I hear your story when we first met, I'm like, how? I mean, just to put it out there, I'm not really into my fitness, but for me, even cycling 360 kilometers anywhere has always been a bit of a fear. But the fact that you did it after overcoming such incredible experiences and diagnosis, let's be honest... It's just amazing to hear. So I've got loads I want to ask okay. you to kick off. And I want to make sure that we really focus on your story here and also giving our audience as much as possible to learn from. So tell me a little bit about Debbie before the accident.
0: So Debbie for, before the accident had a hair salon in a gym. So I was in David Lloyd and Next Generation. So my salon was in a gym. I'd just taken over from my business partner. i just relaunched my salon and... Um, Got, you know, on a shoestring, realistically. I went to body pump four times a week. I cycled to work. I um, had done a little bit of running. I wasn't brilliant at the running, but we were busy. So, you know, everybody that I knew was either going to a class, been to a class, running a class or skiving in my salon because they didn't want to go to their class. So my life was very, very gym orientated. I wasn't I wasn't like a skinny little thing by any means. I was trying, you know. I've been trying since I was fourteen, I think. Um, when I actually looked okay. <laughs> I didn't know about it. But I was I'd been um, a sales manager for a travel company for quite some time. And then one of my friends said to me, she'd been to the gym to check out the membership and when they were building it and they just said, you want to have a look at the salon. And so we were like, we always talked about having a hair salon. I'd been hairdressing since I was 14, but came out of it. And, um, and I couldn't say no, I loved, loved, loved my job, my sales job. Um, You know, I, I, 40, 50 home workers in my team selling a million pounds wow. worth of holidays. If we had a meeting, the meeting would be in Marbella because so all the managers were at home. So it's as easy to, to fly us to Spain as it was to fly to Stoke and much more glamorous. Um, and I always thought that was the job for me. And then when she asked about the hair salon, I just couldn't say no, like impossible. Just, just... She was like, I was going to get a Beetle um, when we got successful. And I thought of her driving past my house with this Volkswagen Beetle. was just, no, <laughs> I just, honestly, it was so mad. It was just something that I couldn't resist. Oh, so um, so before the, that, I'd, I'd, obviously, I'd had the salon. We'd, you know, we would get... Um, like go to body pump. I'd get ready before my last customer. Mm. So my last customer would come in I'd be already ready, cut his hair quickly, lock the door, run out, do body pump, come down, and do sweep up at eight o'clock. It was such a...
1: Wow. It's
0: just something that we really loved doing and was really passionate about. So I guess afterwards was a, was a real shock.
1: Yeah, of course. And so it sounds to me that you were very physically active. Mm. It was a very go, go, go. And also, you know, business is in your blood, is yeah. clear. So there's a lot of resilience that comes with that as well. Now, we are going to go deep into adversity and resilience and what you've learned from the accident. But tell us what happened. Like, what
0: changed? What what changed for me, or what mm-hmm. happened on the accident? With the accident, with yeah. the accident. So it's a very bizarre story, to be honest. And it's one that I, there's no reason that it should have happened. We just did. So we, I bought a car, um, and I bought a car from ebay we'd had company cars and um i just wanted to have a car that we owned and didn't have to worry about mileage so we traveled to get this car um, bought the car drove it most of the way home my husband drove it most of the way home and it was really like what we call my like dad's car dealer an old banger like it really really was <laughs> an old banger like 700 quid car with some flowers and a little rooftop um and we had been given this company bmw so the services i stopped and said to my husband look you drive the nice car go and pick the kids up and i'll drive the other car because i chose it so i felt a bit guilty so we got back onto the dual carriageway and the car just lost power and i obviously was in the wrong lane and it just nothing no power to the car and i was like oh okay so i got it to the side of the road got to the side of the road wasn't really a proper hard shoulder there was a half hard shoulder and it was january so i parked um off the road, but just. But I was fine. Um, I rang him and said, I don't know, maybe it's run out of petrol. So, obviously, we were in tandem at that point. So, he just went to the petrol station, bought a can of petrol, and then pulled up behind me, about two car lengths behind me. I remember being really irritated because he was too far away. I was like... Um, so, I jumped out to go to the petrol cap. I had no idea how to open the petrol cap. I just bought the car. Um, so, I just thought, well, i press it or something. <laughs> and a car went straight into the back of him. Like for no reason, he was off the road and the car went into the back of him, first of all, and shunted this BMW forward. And And I remember looking and thinking, okay, let's that, just shove the car. But then the car didn't stop. It just carried on coming. It curled around the side of the car to where I was, was, and was coming towards me, where I was stood. And this side was a dual carriageway, and this side was where I thought the car was going. And I was stood by the petrol cap, and I just remember thinking, I'm going to die I'm literally, I'm going to die. There's nowhere for me to go. Um, and then I thought, no, I'm not going. I can remember this in my head, right? No, I'm not going. I'm not dying. I'm not leaving my boys. They're not old enough. They think that they're old enough. Jake thinks he's old enough and he's not, and I'm not going. And I randomly took two steps and those two steps saved my life. because Why is the car hit where I was stood? So, oh, my God, I'm getting um, shivers. I obviously didn't notice that. I remember the car hitting me, and I was still stood. So even though I just felt like I was stood on ice, my legs just felt really, like, not working. It wasn't all blood and gore. My car went. It went across the two lanes into the central reservation. That's so how hardy hit the car. Um, and then it hit my shoulder, and it spun me around. And I remember falling onto the ground, and then looking up, and I was in the dual carriageway, and I was like, oh, God. I'm gonna to have to move because now I'm really gonna get killed. So then I had to crawl to the side of the road and I got mostly to the side of the road. My husband couldn't get out of the car. He um when he all the central locking had gone on. So when he eventually came, he was shouting across the road to where the car was and not where I was. And I, I was obviously quite windy, so I remember doing a little wave as I'm crawling kind of no. a jaunty wave, obviously, but a little wave to go, I'm here. Wow. And I got to the I got Mostly to the side of the road, and then just said him, I don't think I can stand up I, you know I just can't bizarrely you know I'd like had a tiny cut here, I broke a nail, but that was it, and there was no outward damage so i I didn't know that I'd broken anything um and what I didn't realize um is that a van driver had seen what was happening and he'd stopped and he'd stopped the traffic um wow. and he came into the hospital the next day and he'd seen everything and he said those two steps that you took saved your life um so I don't know where the steps were. I can't remember that bit. But yeah, so that was really weird because I just thought I was bruised. I remember being amazing. in the hospital and I put my leg up in a thing and the same, and, and all the kids had, had turned up. I said, oh, I think this leg's bruised. And my son was like, it's not bruised, but it's definitely not bruised. And they'd obviously give me some painkillers and stuff by then. And said, yeah, it's fine. We can operate and just took me to the ward. And then the next day, if, if you, for not resilience really, I don't I don't know if it's something that was, was natural. The next day, the surgeon came to me. And they are really bouncy, these surgeons. They're really excited when they're, when they're going to operate on you. And um, he said, right, got a plan. We're going to be able to fix the leg, but you're not going to be able to use your leg. So I was like, no, 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 that can't happen. And he said, oh. And I said, no, 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 no. I have a hair salon in a gym. I have three children. You can't, I can't not have my leg, not have any use of the leg. And he was like, oh. And he went away. Like, I didn't even know that was possible, to be honest. Um, And then he came back the next day and said, right, got a different plan. You won't be able to bend your knee, but you'll be able to use your leg. And I was like, no, that can't happen either. No, it's like, you know, I just bought a car and I've got this bruised leg. And now you're telling me that it's going to change my life. And so he went away again. And um, I can't remember what he said the next day, but eventually he came back I think in the afternoon the next day and said right we, now we've got a plan and he said you'll be able to use your leg um, you might not have full bend we're going to take some bone out of your hip we're going to form like a little casing to put the bones that are broken back into and hope that that, that... and then he said um, we're going to go quite deep into the hip to get the good stuff and I was like oh not a bald egg no more no just <laughs> do that one type thing um, and so he did that and I suppose now when I look back I think god what if I said yes on the first day mm-hmm. And it wasn't uh I wasn't argumentative, it's was just fear, I think. Yeah. It's just like, no, that can't that can't be it.
1: Do you know what I find fascinating though? That story, every time you say it, I have the same reaction. It's the shivers. And I'm sure people who are watching and listening have the same reaction. That the two steps, mm. like that that thought process that comes in that guided you somewhere, someone, whatever you all believe in, something said Debbie, move the F out of the way, yeah. you know. Go, nudge, you know, and it's beautiful to hear that, you know, other people got involved and helped and the van driver and so on. But what I find most fascinating is obviously you do have a background in sales mm-hmm. and even hearing that story, it was like you were negotiating with the surgeon. Yeah. You're like, no, 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 <laughs> no what's the next
0: option? That's not that's it. Negotiating. I think, it, honestly, I just think it was fear. And and I never actually talked about this until last year. This is like the last year is the only time I started talking because I just felt like I did what everybody else would do. I didn't think I did anything different to what you would do or anybody else would do. Mm. Um, So I didn't think anything was particularly remarkable. I was just like, I was lucky. I actually thought I was the luckiest person in the world. So they thought it was crazy in the hospital because that's what I told them. I told them I was the luckiest person in the world. They'd be wheeling me around in a wheelchair and going, oh, poor you. And I said, oh, poor me, I'm the luckiest person around. And they'd be like, "I said, look, I should be in the morgue. I'm not in the morgue. I'm the luckiest person in, in the world. Wow, and that's how I—that's why I, I was like that for a year. I think I was really hard to live with. <laughs> it's like, I'm so lucky to be here. Um, it's Mother's Day. I shouldn't be here. I'm so lucky. Um, wow. Yeah, I was. I think my kids wanted to actually go. Mm, maybe. <laughs> so, but yeah, I was just—I honestly thought I was the luckiest person mm. because you know, door number one, door number two, better than door number one. So, mm. I'd already gone to the worst-case scenario. Yeah, which was completely opposite to my family. And my husband, my husband hadn't got to that stage, so he was angry, he was upset, he went through lots, which is his story to tell, really. But he went through a lot of um, anger at the driver, anger, just anger at the whole situation. He dealt with it mm. differently to me, and I couldn't understand it, because I was like, well, I don't understand, I'm I'm really lucky. You know, I'm sitting in this hospital bed, I'm very lucky. Wow. Um so whether that luckiness was worse, I'm the lucky person, don't make it worse by even telling me I can't yeah. use the knife. Never I find do. that never I never really went back to body pump
1: though <laughs> I find that really fascinating though because that comes into the piece of how we all handle adversity mm-hmm. because like you said everyone experiences different and I'm a massive believer in gratitude and appreciation mm-hmm. and the fact that you probably were okay to some annoyingly walking around walking around in the wheelchair was a little saying bit, yeah. you know oh I'm lucky and being grateful but because you were going around thinking that everyone else probably be thinking what is she on but that in my opinion, probably had a huge impact on your recovery because your belief system does drive a lot. of. For all yeah. of us, it does drive. And if if we feel that our luck is there and it's on our side, the likelihood of us actually being able to create, in my opinion, does in massively increase. Whereas a lot of people, like you said, your husband, have a different experience. Mm. They have different reactions to all how we face things differently. So, so since the accident, what would you say has changed in your mindset or your belief system since that and the, f- the feeling of overcoming that adversity now?
0: Um. Well, the first thing that I was really shocked at is that one push come to shove and I thought I was going to die. I didn't think about my business. The only people I felt about was my family. Um, Interesting. I didn't think about having a flat stomach. I didn't think about the business. All the things I thought were really important before, when, when it came to it, just the people who lived in my house were important. And that was that. So I kind of vowed I wouldn't become a workaholic again. I wouldn't put all my focus onto the business. Of course, you slip every... And then go, oh, doing it again type thing because that's what's natural to you. Running a hair salon afterwards was so tough. Um, So, so tough. That was was really, really hard. But, you know, I had to pay the wages. I had to bring some money in. I had to to look after myself. I, I famously remember being in the hospital. And I was... Honestly, I had the best time in hospital, it sounds awful, but I was, um, my clients all came in, they bought me pyjamas, cakes, I always had too many, um, too many visitors, I was very, um, very well looked after, and I was on a ward with, um, the Golden Girls basically, so like 76 with a toy boy, 91 in the corner, and this one and here, um, and they kept putting me in a hospital night, and I was just like, oh they're trying to make us all look the same, I'm not (laughs) sure what's going on here, Um, but You know, I looked at them and I just thought, God, you know, the 91-year-olds hopping out of bed and going to the toilet. I'm often to use a bedpan and pull myself up. Um, So some of those bits were were quite tough, but I just believed that I could get better. I think I was quite deluded. I just believed that I could get better. I remember when the physio came and they'd say, these exercises to do, I'm just doing religiously. And I'm never a girl that does as she's told at all. Um, But I did whatever because I just thought if I do whatever they tell me then I'll get back to where I want to be. Mm. Um, It's a long, long recovery. So the first part was because they'd put this bone in my knee, they'd built like a little saucer, put some other bones in there to try and put that back. So I was non-weight-bearing, not even touch weight-bearing, non-weight-bearing for about five months. Wow. Um, I ended up with two plates and 22 screws for my, what I thought was a bruised leg. Um, Two scars on my legs that are like 10 inches long. And... and I was on crutches for all that time. So for like five months on, on crutches, um, never ever learned how to get up the stairs. So the first day I went home, I tried to go up the stairs. The physios won't let you home unless you can prove that you can go up the stairs. And the first day that I went home, and I went home early because my husband wasn't coping and the children, I just wanted to go home and but I could go there. So I said to my, um, they took me round and I couldn't do, cause they made me walk to the physio and it was really you know, big swollen there. And um, so they sent me back, let me have a sleep and then bought a wheelchair, wheelchaired me around to the physio, let me do the little bit and then was like, yeah, you can go home. So the first time I went to go up the steps, I fell on my foot, I just fell. So I fell backwards, stood on the leg. And then after that, I was kind of lost my bottle a little bit. So I went up on my bum for a long time. I had great upper body strength, I'm telling you. If you want to Thank get the wings <laughs> on, yeah. You know, blessings. Um So, yeah, I went up on my bum. And there was one time that we went to see Take That at Wembley and I tried to have a conversation with the ticket people to say, can I sit somewhere else apart from where my seat was? And they were like, no. I said, well, I have to go on my bum to get up the stairs. And they were like, hard luck. So what I did, um, So I suppose this comes under resiliency. What I did was I um, Googled all the CEOs of Wembley and um, or Ticketmaster, one of the two, and got a guy and I emailed him and said can you help me and he rang me he's like where did you get my email address from us it's on the internet and he arranged for me to have some tickets and they had a disabled seat in thing but i was just like no this i know there's a there's a possibility so somehow someone has to help me i love that so um yeah i'd forgotten about that that's yeah. fantastic
1: and i think you're right that is resilience and with part of it i'm a massive believer in if you don't ask you don't get mm. and it's the some would say audacity i would say courage to actually go okay this is the problem I'm being told. How do I fix that? A lot of people would have just accepted it. Same in the first example you shared. The surgeon came in and said, Debbie, this is what I'm going to do. You didn't accept it in the same way you didn't accept it I then. don't
0: really believe that no means no. Um, and I don't mean that in a creepy way. But I don't really believe that no means no. I just think it means find another way. Um, and, I, and I've and only just realized, so I've done quite a lot of self-work in the last year. And I've only just realized where that came from. And one, uh, myself and my sister were quite small my dad said no to everything so we wanted to go to a school disco He'd say no and then my mum would work on him and so all of a sudden these satiny shiny shirts would come and we'd go to the disco so I realized that actually I was asking the wrong person I needed to ask her mm. and then she would work on him and then the no would become a yes and so I think like that's then gone through my whole life to go mm. you're asking the wrong person there's a yes here or there's yeah. another way you just need to go and ask the right person that's incredible um, Yeah, she doesn't know she's to blame for that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So tell me then, obviously, we're talking a lot about adversity and overcoming it. I see there's still a bit of a gap to the story. So you've overcome this incredible achievement. And the fact that you are sat here today even is amazing. Where did you then, in my head, get the marbles to go, do you know what, Chloe? I'm going to cycle across India. Like where
0: did that come from where's the the drive or the passion for that well i tried i tried lots of things to get back to being myself um i had to go and see a lot of surgeons because obviously it was a car accident and they wanted to assess where i was and um and i thought i was getting better so i thought i was doing some all the exercises and i was doing what they told me to do and i thought you know eventually i'm going to get back to where i was exactly where i was so about a year after that um I saw a couple of surgeons, a really big guy up in London that like no one gets to see, and they just said you're going to be in a wheelchair at 55, and and I was so shocked. I was so yeah, 55, you're going to be in a wheelchair, and there's nothing you can do about it. And I just thought, okay, I'm again, I'm talking to the wrong person here. That's for normal people. That's not for me. You know, some people might do, and and I understand realistically is that they have to give you the worst case scenario. Because that, that is a possibility. And it still is a possibility. It still will will be a possibility at some point. So I guess the my friend had done a big ride in Brazil. Um, it was incredibly hard. And she just decided to do it. And I just kept watching. So there's a bit that I always miss out is that I've had a knee replacement on the other leg. Because I put so much pressure on my left leg that I wore the cartilage out. So I've had to have a half knee replacement for for that. Um, I'd had some steroid injections and I'd gone from having my hair salon, which I sold because I couldn't any longer be in the salon. I couldn't be a hairdresser. It wasn't big enough to just always be a receptionist. And I'd upgraded and managed to get myself into a 7,000 square foot spa with 10 treatment rooms and a um, mud resort and a jacuzzi. I kind of just went a little bit trying to still be the same person, but not be the person behind the chair. Um, And it was, I fell in love with a building that was, built on sand i think to be honest never never ever anyone takes anything would never fall in love with the building okay just <laughs> um it cost me a lot of money and i was running around all the time and i ended up having this knee replacement and the spa was great but i'd then sold it to somebody else and i was still business consultant for him and the horror of what it was like to have an operation and still work before was just so fresh in my mind that i was just no I just I'm not going to do not going to put myself through it. And I was in a position where I could um, do that. So I I sold the spa and then subsequently the other person closed it down. Um, and then I had the knee replacement. And I probably about three weeks after the knee replacement, I got out of bed and walked to the bathroom. And I walked with no pain, no pain whatsoever. And I was like, Oh my god, I'm walking. I'm just walking. I'm not holding on to anything. I'm not. Having to hold on to anything to, along the walls. I was like, I'm just walking, like like a baby must feel like when they suddenly start walking. I was so gleeful that I signed up for the moonwalk, 26 miles around London in the middle of the night. And I've signed, I've applied for it, I've never got a ticket. This time I got a ticket. So I did the, the moonwalk. I went back to the physio and said, Can I do this? And she said, Yeah, you kind of have to train and be active. So I did that first of all, the moonwalk. Really, really tough on the legs, really tough on the training. But I, I did that. Um, and then I didn't do anything. I just stopped again because it was so tough afterwards. Always the next day I'd be walking like a crab. My feet would hurt. My knees would hurt. My hips would hurt. And so when she did the cycling challenge, I was like, okay, my surgeon loves cycling. Instantly, my, surgeon, my surgeon is called Sunny Day. That is wow. his name. Perfect name. It's mm-hmm. called Sunny Day. So so she did this. And then one day she just sent me the thing, said so she would do, do the India. And I just paid the deposit and did it. I didn't think anything about it really. Wow. Um, and then and I'd looked, we were gone for 10 days and it was 360 kilometres. I thought, oh, 36 kilometres a day, that's fine. I can manage that. Of course you don't. You're there for 10 days. We only cycle for five. So when I really looked at the itinerary and the first day was 74 kilometres, the next day was 94, I was like, oh, my God, what have I done? Um, but I, we had a training schedule and I went and I saw um, a boxer, A lady who just started boxing, I think her name's Amy Andrews, she's amazing. And I saw her on a stage and somebody asked her what motivated her to get up in the morning and do the hill runs. And she said, nothing, nothing at all. She said, but I know if I don't do those, when I get in the ring in six months time, I'm going to get punched in the face. I'm going to be embarrassed and I'm going to lose and it'll be my fault. So that made me commit to the training wow because i was just like resonated so strongly with me of like if you just put the work in then this is possible
1: yeah
0: and and you know there's a bus um and there is the option of getting on the bus however as i said my friend had done this before and there was a lady in her 70s that was called margaret who um the whole of the time they were in brazil and brazil was really tough because it was all cliffs. Um, Every time they the came along the bus, said, Do you want to get on the bus? They were like, is Margaret on the bus? And they say no. So then nobody could get on the bus. Fantastic. So all the time, she just kept saying to me, if you get on that bus, I'm going to call you Margaret for the rest of your life. <gasps> That's a great friend. Yeah, <laughs> she's a terrible friend. But, you know, that was my thing. I was like, I'm not going to get on the yeah. bus. If I, get on the- I knew that if I got on the bus, then I was going to be upset mm. with myself. And it was only because I didn't put the prep in. Yeah. So um, last year was a really interesting summer because I'm a bit of a party animal and um, I dance if I dance I'm in bed for two days afterwards but I'll take the sacrifice so last year I didn't go out on Saturday night because we trained every Sunday morning I miss festivals I miss barbecues I was so scared that I wouldn't be able to do it Mm. that I put the work in but you know what I love about that is exactly what you said it's about the sacrifice
1: and I think when it comes back to setting these goals a lot of people don't achieve goals because they're not prepared for the yeah. sacrifice they're prepared for the result and the feeling and the amazing result but they're not necessarily ready for the sacrifice what would you say you've helped you get ready for that sacrifice and do you think that having it taken away from you with the accident helped you build up that resilience to go do you know what I'm going to do this I'm actually prepared
0: to do this I think um in my heart I believe that I'm destined for a big life and I want a big life and that doesn't mean lots of riches it's just a big life lots of experiences and travel and I'm not prepared to settle for anything less than the big life so mm-hmm. if something comes along that I shouldn't be able to do I think well you know Bear rails goes up mountains kills himself come you know his was the first book i read we went to egypt on holiday that year just after i come to crutches and i thought i'll read the bag rails when i'll see what it's like for somebody else who's plenty of people are worse off than me mm. um, you know you see all the paralympians and stuff and i think god what am i complaining about with a couple of dodgy knees so i just don't believe that anything's out of bounds for me so if i want to do something i just have to work out how i do it yeah um and i suppose that comes from the business head of like what do i you know when i when I took on that great big spa, I put a piece of paper through the door to the landlord because I couldn't find it where where it was. And um and he rang me and I negotiated this this amazing building. It was amazing, and it just wasn't built properly. <laughs> just, uh, so um it yeah, it was amazing. It was when we moved in, things like the door handles came off when you are in the room with people and yeah, it was just, that's a different story, a different story. But I was I just didn't believe that that I should be restricted I don't I, I still don't, I don't think anybody I think anybody comes to me and says they want to do something no matter how incredible or how big it is I'm like okay so how do we do it you know I suppose in my coaching I call that how do we eat an elephant one bite at a time so we just chunk everything down and go my, my friend did a training plan last year and so she's like we're doing this and when I saw the 50 mile ride I was like oh, i'm never going to be able to do 50 miles but september we did the 50 miles so she she'd kind of and she'd stretch you know there is no there was no getting out of the training it was just we're going and 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 that's that and then along the way i met so many amazing people last year and i met a guy who woke up paralyzed um jimmy mccash he woke up paralyzed from the waist down he's had like a shingles type disease and i met his wife and then i was talking to him and he just climbed everest wow on crutches you know just climbed everest on crutches and i'm like there's no excuses there's no excuses for me to be able to say that i can't do this um and there was one day when i was talking to him he has a, a platform called see no balance so i was talking to him and um i said oh it's gonna rain on sunday and he's like deb and as i said it i thought oh my god talk about talking to the wrong person know <laughs> your audience right yeah <laughs> very much so and he's like you know I just climbed up so I said yes I remember that you just climbed up as I was saying that stupid comment and he said well you know what I'm going to say to you man up yeah basically there's another word in between we saved that off the podcast <laughs> um and I was like so on the Sunday morning when it was raining and I looked out the window and I was like okay I'm not going to get away with this so I found a Kaggle thing um like one of those they gave it to us in Jamaica at the um I remember the the run place, Appleton, that's it. And they give it to us so that if we were walking around. So I found that in the cupboard and I put this great big blue cagoule um, on and I cycled. Wow. So I my friends and I was looking like, I don't know what.
1: But you did it. I and did that's, it. that's the key thing, right? So everything you've shared, Debbie, is so proof why you're the expert in resilience and you're the expert in overcoming adversity. So based on everything you know now from your accident, from doing such amazing things, what is
0: building resilience to you? It's just not giving up. It's just not giving up, really. If you, I you know, I, I also think if you want something badly enough, you'll do it. If you really, you know, if you really you can do anything that you want to do if you really, really want to do it. If you don't really want to do it, you just think, oh, I should do that. That's never gonna happen. But if you just think, you know, I paid my deposit, I told people I was going. Um, I didn't tell people so much in the beginning and I didn't have any sponsorship in the beginning. And then people were like, oh, you should have sponsorships. And then I decided to raise money for um, a local radio station that deal with autistic children. And there's a guy guy there who, um, you know, he can only use like one finger and one thumb and then he's using 10-year-old equipment. So I was like, okay, I would love to raise the money for someone who's not as lucky as me. Wow. Um, And that's what I just think. I still think I'm very lucky. Mm -hmm. I think I am just... A, a lucky person. I have one thing to say. I think we're going to run out of time at some point. Mm-hmm. But the one thing I wasn't lucky with was with my cycling kit. So I'm not a cyclist and I'm not massively sporty. So my friend kept saying to me, get the cycling shorts, wear two pairs. So you got they have like padding mm-hmm. to save your bottom. Um, and so I had a pair and I thought they're okay. And then all I worried about when I was ordering another pair of Amazon was was the comfort factor. So I put my new shorts on and I cycled over to her and she said, um, she said, those shorts are quite see-through, you know, the new ones. She said, I can see your tattoo. So I was like, oh, okay. Pulled my t-shirt down, carried on. I thought, well, that's odd, but they were really comfy. So I continued cycling with those shorts or the other shorts or whichever ones I had for months, for hundreds of miles around the Cotswolds. And it wasn't until I was ordering my kit to go to India and you have a bag for every single day and I ordered some more shorts and they were more see-through, like a proper mesh and I realised that actually they were underwear. So you have underwear shorts and they have short shorts. No, so I've done hundreds of miles on a bike around the Cotswolds in my pants. <laughs> And I had no idea. People got BP and I thought it was just being support. No way, that's (laughs) amazing. So yeah, so pants were just like, you know, that's the thing that was, was the problem. Yeah.
1: But you learnt the lesson and that's the key thing,
0: right? You learnt the lesson, put some leggings over the top. (laughs) (laughs) But then your, you know, your clothing behaves differently when you're in India. So, you Mm -hmm. know, it's hotter, you're sweating um, and they move. So I, I like my most memorable part of India is not when we cycled across the rocks or when we cycled across the sand that everyone else had to get off and I did. Um, was when they rolled down and I was cycling past some boys that had come out for school and they chased me through the village laughing and I just was pedalling and trying to pull the shorts back up again. Um, yeah, that was that was memorable <laughs> to be honest. So. But we were really lucky in India. You know, everybody came out of the house and clapped and waved us. That's fantastic. Everyone, yeah. all the children, all the adults, every village we went through, yeah. everybody was just clapping. So that kind of helped you of course keep going, you know, when you're huffing and puffing and they're waving to you, you're like, oh, mm, better smile now instead. Yeah. So, And that's what I love the
1: most about when it comes to building resilience is it's you're not on your own no. doing that. You know, whenever we've experienced challenges in our life, whenever we've been knocked down... If we're on our own and we truly feel on our own doing it, I believe that it makes it so much harder. Yeah. We're always around people that can support us. We just need to ask them. And like you say, if we don't have them, find them, find the right person. You mentioned that with your husband was supportive of you and all these incredible people that you've met on the on the journey. I'm curious from your perspective. Obviously, we're here to talk about inspiration. Your story is so inspiring. It's unreal. Who has inspired you on your journey through this, this interesting phase of your life?
0: Um it's a hard one really because i can only really remember who's inspired me now i have to say my friend who uh julia who had done stuff and forced me to get on that bike and you know she she nothing stops her so she's you know she's a very inspiring person She's done bike rides and, and signed up for all sorts of things since then anyway. Um, so she was one of the most inspiring people. But also if you, um, you know, if you look at celebrities and stuff, I always try to look at the people that have got a really positive mindset. So I listen to Mel Robbins. I listen to Lisa to Motivate. Um, I listen to not so much of the, the, the guys. I started listening to Tony Robbins when I was doing my NLP Masters just to kind of get an understanding of how, NLP is all talking an NLP language, and I struggled with that. So to get an understanding of how I could use that NLP, the magicness, but in a normal language so that people could understand mm. and how, how you could do that. So, um, but yeah, those two ladies were... I know I listen to a lot of the people on um, Stephen Bartlett's podcast now. Don't, in the car, listen to the radio. I tend to listen to those because I think mm. he's had so many inspiring people on um, that just... Really good thoughts, I just think you mm. I'm a real half full person anyway. Yeah. I think I've always been a half full person, quite independent um and so just listening to other people that are intelligent realistically yeah. maybe that's the probably the only word intelligent and have gone into looking at psychology i'm I'm always fascinated by people mm. like incredibly um nosy, incredibly. I analyze people's shopping baskets in the supermarket. I, I literally look and go, oh, that one's on a date tonight. That one's I literally <laughs> that was
1: having a bad day. Yeah. Got a tub of Ben and Jerry's, that
0: one's got all the kids, and that was got all the junk food. I think yeah. I saw an old man once that had two cans of Guinness and a half a loaf of bread, and I was like, oh, I want to buy the other half for you. <laughs> but that was probably <laughs> enough. But I'm, I'm always so curious about other people. Mm. So I, it's not one person that I religiously listen to. I'm a bit of a butterfly. I kind mm. of go from person to person to person. But I'm always just thinking, well. You know, if people have had hard times, then what kept them going is mm. such? So, and, for, and as I say, for me, I just thought I'd done what, what everybody else would do. Wow. I didn't think that I'd done anything that was inspirational or, or I just did mm. what I needed to do to survive. Yeah. Realistically.
1: Survival is such a powerful perspective mm. as well. I think when, when survival is challenged, I believe that's when our true genius, juices passion really comes out because there's no other option yeah right you mentioned Stephen Bartlett there and I've followed his podcast for years I find him very inspiring as well so it's funny Mm -hmm. you mentioned that he's had some incredible guests on his show what would you say has been the biggest takeaway you've had from listening to some of his guests or some of the inspiring people that you've listened to
0: Oh, I loved the um, – so I used to listen to him when I was cycling as well. So when I cycled with my friend, I didn't, but when I was cycling as well, so the two hours. So when you're training, it was actually quite good just to just have, like, one earphone in and, and something to just distract you. Mm-hmm. So I've listened to lots of them. Um, and I think – is, is it Mo Gaudat, the happy guy? Yeah. I listened to his, and, and he was just like, you know, there's just four four things. And the other thing was that he parked his brain. He, he parked the, the self-chatter, and we would just mm-hmm. go – I can't talk to you right now. I need you to just come back at six o'clock. And and I think that's one thing that I probably do is I'm I'm very good. When I had the salon, we would call it show legs, you know. Hairdressers are very, very resilient. If you're ill, hard luck. Um, you know, I've had hairdressers, I'm beauty therapists, and beauty therapists tend to be, I'm sniffing, so I can't do a massage. Hairdressers will, you know, we just go in and power through. Um, and just, you know, if you've got a cold, just take five sips until it works and then you just carry on. So it's something that's already in that industry, I guess, is that you, the show goes on. If I was having a row at home, if I was having a problem at home, got to the salon door, that came away. That was just mm. gone. It was like being on stage to a certain extent. So I think that resilience was already there. It just wasn't there on a personal basis. It was there mm. to say, right, I have to do all this for these other people. So I suppose I have just got more selfish. Definitely in the last year, I've got more selfish. Brilliant. hugely selfish
1: and that's often a negative from a lot of people you know being selfish I remember when I first went through my clinical depression years ago I remember saying to my therapist I can't say that and she was encouraging me to put boundaries up and I said I can't say that I'm uh, that'll be selfish I can't say that that'll be selfish and I was like she, she, it felt so alien to put myself first. Yeah, so now it's interesting that when you say that, it's like you were doing it in your professional life and just getting on with it. But actually, it was the personal side that the resilience wasn't there. Mm-hmm. So, question for you, Debbie:
0: Are we born with resilience, or is it something that we can build on and create? I think you build and create. I mean, when you're born, you're you know you can't look after yourself, so you can't be resilient realistically. We're not animals that have to run in the forest as minute that we're born we're we're nurtured and looked after so i think you know things just have to happen for you to suddenly get a little bit tougher um i grew up in a in a very like nobody was an entrepreneur then um but we grew up in a house where um, my dad sold cars they sold anything anything so you know everything was for sale it'd be really quite normal to come home and the sofa's gone and there's another one coming through the window but someone's after <laughs> saw a leg off because it don't quite fit through the window or um we never owned a car, the cars were always in whatever name they were and it was sold. I come home from school one day, I think I was about eight years old. So my first very successful sales story. Um, and the TV, so somebody was walking out the door with the TV and they'd bought our TV and, and we lived in a terrace in so a lounge was like on the second floor and I went into the lounge and there's another TV there. So this guy's putting his TV up and there's a knock on the door and someone said, I've come to buy the TV. And my dad had bought 12. He's got 12 in a deal. He'd sold a car and they part paid in these TVs. So all 12 TVs. And my mum just said, oh, Deb, show him how to use the TV. She not watch TV. Because I've never seen TV before in my life. Luckily, it was just like four buttons, channels then, and and a little switch that you did. So yeah, all the TV's gone. But that was just a normal day. It was a normal day to, for things to be sold or odd things to happen, just odd things to happen, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up with car dealers, they're odd anyway. Um, quite normal to see them hanging from the ceiling or hanging from the door frame or mm-hmm. anything. So we, I grew up in a world that was, was not very, very traditional, I suppose. And so maybe that gave me some resilience of... Maybe more looking after yourself and making sure that I was okay, that I, I did stuff because there was um, a level of independence. But in all honesty, I suppose, I mean, I my first job, I was 14. The day I turned 14, I walked around the town in Swindon and asked every single person if they had a job for me. And the last one, a jean shop, gave me a job wow. um, and then fired me two weeks later. Because <laughs> they said I was too helpful. I was trying to sell people the jeans and they didn't want the jeans sold. They wanted to just wander around. And then that's how I got a job in the hairdressers after that. Um because yeah. I was just determined to to get my own money and, and be independent, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I left home at 17. So
1: I think that's also a really powerful connection though. From my experience, I do believe that resilience and independence are connected. Yeah. Because a lot of the time if we are codependent on other people we don't have a need to build resilience because I think a lot of what we experience when we're tra- growing up, similar to yourself, you know, what was normal to you? Some people are going, really? Like that was your life? That builds the resilience because you have
0: to be independent. You learn independence. And if often we don't have to learn it, we don't need to learn the resilience. Also, I suppose we actually expect the unexpected. You know, somebody else might freak out that their TV is gone or that their parents have gone to Bulgaria and sold all of their clothes and come home with an empty suitcase because they have great clothes in Bulgaria. So they sold them all. Um, so I just took that, that was normal. So when I went to Jamaica and somebody wanted to buy my backpack, I sold it to them. Um, cause I was just like, well, that's what people do, isn't it? That's normal. So I think if you have a bit of an unexpected life, you do be a little bit more on the ball. What's going on? Mm. Am I okay? Is this okay? Um, my, I suppose my resilience actually is, and I don't always share this is it came crashing down last year because I was a very, very fast paced coach and I got to ask, uh, a great life, honestly, like, you know, everybody wants to be the 10K coach. I smashed that. But do you know what I did when I did the 10K coach was I was like, I'm going to be a 15 one now. I'm going to be a 20 one. I, the, bottom, the top of my mountain was the bottom of the next one. I was just always nothing was ever enough. And I'd got to this stage. Um, and part of the cycling thing was that I, I couldn't do what I could do before. So much as I thought I could do what I could do before, I was in a gym. I didn't fit into my life at all. I couldn't go to the classes, they'd wheel me in for coffee and then come back out again. And that was really, really hard, which is why I moved out to a different salon and came out. I tried to carry on for about a year. I ignored what they said and then I've never had a bad back in my life and my back went. I couldn't going back to not walking, pains in other places and it frightened me. And I just thought, oh my God, this this is gonna be what I'm gonna do. So I started to work on the business, which should do anyway. Not the best way to learn that lesson, but it is true on the business, not in the business. Mm. Um, and I don't advocate anybody's going to break a leg to do that, find an easier way. But I what I did when I started marketing the business and, and doing the business, business got more successful. So I got lots of praise for this more successful person and lots of praise for the business side of it. So the physical dab who was the body pump person was a cycling person, I just I thought she was dead. I thought I was, she's just gone. And she, I can never get her back. Once I realised the, the extent of what I could do, I couldn't get her back. So I built this other person and I built this business person, very hard face, very hard coach, very like go hard or go home. You know, we're not going to sleep for six weeks, like a mini Wolf of Wall Street without the drugs, you know. Um and then just last year, I'd been to Jamaica, I'd been on a retreat in um, Ibiza, I'd been on a walking holiday, in, and I just had this amazing life. And, and I sat down and I met somebody who's very inspirational, and I think you should have her on your podcast, Sheena Shanti, she's a spiritual coach. And I met her totally by accident, and we started talking, and she said, you're burnt out you're burnt out and I was like no I'm not I'm having a wonderful life I'm flying to Ibiza tomorrow sure get on with your stuff and then we sat down at the end of the day and had a conversation and she she basically said look you know this is a much nicer life for you if you don't keep running around and being this this tough person and this hard person and um and she had a, another person who I was doing marketing for at the time um Suzanne Davis and I was talking to her and I said to her the trouble is, like, this is me now because this is what I've got. That other person is not there. And she said to me, um, she said, no. She said, Fat Debbie is sitting on Fit Debbie. You just went there out. And I was like, no, she's definitely gone. She said, try. And so I kind of went away and thought about it. And I was like, really? Could I just unzip the bag and maybe bring this other person out, this one that's likes to exercise and likes to do this stuff and is a little bit softer and a little bit nicer than this person who's, quite hard. And, you know, um, like one of my clients would call me the procrastination police. Another one calls me a virus, you know, so I was really quite tough and almost emulating a coach that I was with at the time, almost emulating that because I didn't have my real person. I wasn't this person. Mm-hmm. So through the exercise in, I managed to drag this other person out and I took a, um, took six weeks out of the business, just stopped the, the spiritual coach, Sheena, she said to me, just stop. And I said, what do you mean just stop? didn't know how. I didn't know how to, like, look after myself. So she says, just do nothing. She says, well, what, what do I have to do to do nothing? Like, I wanted a list of do nothing. <laughs> Give me <laughs> a checklist, <chocolate, laughs> please. <laughs> I, honestly, I'll phone her up and go, what does doing nothing mean? Does that mean I have to meditate? Do I have to do this? Do I have to do that? Should I be listening listen to videos? Should I be? I'm like, now I look at it, I think, oh, my God, you're a manic. Um, and over the six weeks, I did nothing. I just potted. And she'd go, how are you feeling? I'm like, oh, I feel all right. Not stressed or anything. She's like, okay, carry on doing that. Cause just she wouldn't give me what nothing was, and then about six weeks later, six weeks later, I kind of had like this little ball of happiness sitting here, and I just thought, okay, there's nothing. Things all right, it's quite good, and then I could see the absolute chaos that I'd lived in, mental hustle chaos that I'd lived in, and not only could I see it for myself, I can now see it in pretty much most entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. and I kind of want to say to it, and I do the people that I work with is to say. There's kind of, there's an option here that you don't have to live in that chaos. You don't have to do an emails at two o'clock in the morning. You don't have to still be working at 10 o'clock at night. You don't have to do seven days a week or, you know, just constantly thinking if you weren't working, you're not getting anywhere. Mm. But actually, there's a, a much nicer way to work and there's a much nicer way to have life. I finish work at five o'clock every day. I have an alarm on my phone that says, stop work, go do something that isn't, isn't work. Literally, I put it on my phone Monday to Friday, you know. And, people, and the people I was working with at the time, I thought that was amazing. They were like, oh, my God, that's amazing. It's so like the most amazing thing that I'd ever done was to tell myself to stop work at five o'clock. Yeah. But what, but before that, I used to finish at seven and then go and start cooking the dinner. So, like, move from maybe one side of the kitchen to the other. Mm. And I'd listen to somebody that said about habits and resilience, stuff like that. And it was like, it's not enough to have... Um, what's the word It's not enough to just want something you have to do stuff so there's he was like look at a habit that you've got that's taking you away from what you want to do and make a habit that takes you towards what you want to do mm-hmm. and so I was like okay if I keep finishing at seven and then start cooking the food for everybody I can't train I can't train for the bike ride and I want to do the bike ride so how do I make some time in my life for that um, and so I've set the alarm at five o'clock So sometimes I would go on a bike ride and sometimes I would just do the stuff that made it easy for me to go to take a whole day on the weekend and the cycle. So that's kind of now in my life, really, that that quietness, that calmness, a lot of like not going to the parties and stuff. It just now I'm not really bothered because I realized actually the nicer life is nice. So she's out of the closet and the other one's kind of not gone in the closet, but they sit side by side now. They don't sit on on top of each other. But, you know, burnout, you never recognize when you're in burnout.
1: No, absolutely not. And that's because we're in burnout. And I, yeah. I've i totally been there before. And everything you were saying, I was like, oh, my God, where were you when I needed to hear this a couple of years ago? That's a Yeah, of course, <laughs> because we all experience it. And hopefully those of you watching or listening will get value of this. And maybe you see even a tiny bit of it, you're going, oh, my God, that's me. I'm in there right now. And I find it interesting that you refer to these two versions of Debbie because... What I've experienced when we go through grief, when we go through adversity, because it is an element of grieving. Mm. There's there's something that's happened in our lives for all of us that changes who we are. And we have to almost let go of what we thought we were going to be. And we're grieving that. Totally. And you had actually labeled these two versions of Debbie. And it's really beautiful to see that they are now, like you say, side by side, not one on top of the other or one hiding. What advice would you give to somebody else that's maybe been through adversity that is currently still facing this fact that they haven't managed to find this, this balance between the two versions of themselves. Well, I would say call
0: me, um, <laughs> first of all. But I think what you have to do is just allow yourself some kindness. I wasn't kind to me. I was kind to everybody else, but I wasn't kind to me. I was so unkind to me that that first bit when the car was about to hit me and I thought I'm going to die, I was angry that I didn't start fighting earlier. I literally could not show any vulnerability. Not one bit of vulnerability, And it was a protection, I suppose, of, of where I was. But I was angry for 10 years that I didn't start fighting straight away. That I couldn't even give myself a break in that situation. Mm. That I didn't do the, oh, no, because I thought, oh, I could have done four steps. I could have, maybe I could have been somewhere else. So, idiot, why did you do that? Th- that horribleness to myself. No one else would even think of that. But I had that in my head. Mm. Didn't really talk about it. But in my head, I was just like, damn it, you could have done better. Yeah. And so I think I think for anybody who's going through something at the moment, just take like I can still only meditate for 10 minutes. Even I go on YouTube and I find a bit of music to listen to and just breathe. That's all it is. Just, just breathe in um, and just doing some nice deep breaths. Um, and if it says more than 10, 12 minutes, I won't even click on it. <laughs> like, and I'm still very impatient when it says the five, four, four, I'm pressing at three just in case that makes it quicker. Um, I know it's not, but I still do press at three um, and just take 10 minutes to yourself, just 10. No, no, like some days when I'm really busy, I'll put the damn music on when I'm in the shower and I try to do the breathing when I'm in the shower. But what it does is just takes my head to a different place. And so what I'm saying is just switch off for 10 minutes, even if it's in the shower, even if you've got to just go and park somewhere in a car park and just turn everything off. Like they like white noise and stuff and meditation. And it, and just breathe, stop your head for a minute because you'll find that that is, is enough in the mm-hmm. beginning, or it's enough to, to kind of go, Oh, actually I did have, after that six weeks, I had one afternoon that went to hell in a handcart and all I crave was, to go, Oh, I just want to go upstairs and, and do the meditating. And I think the other thing is you have to be aware of how much you're, when you're in the hustle, when you're in the chaos, you know, what I thought was a great life wasn't really a great life. You know, I had to work really hard to earn the money to have the nice holiday to have the nice meal, to be able to treat everybody else. What I was doing was rewarding myself with all these lovely things for the horror that was my day. Mm. So I was like self-soothing myself with the luxury, with the, um, you know, okay, we're going to go on a, on a super yacht. We're going to go to the Caribbean. So I soothed myself by saying it's worth it for these nice things to to have to do the tough stuff, to have to be hardworking. And, and I was just like running away from my own life you know like you're on holiday and, that, and I think that's something that you have to check in it took someone external to tell me you're running away from your actual life mm. you're, you're having this life that perpetuates you to have to have the holiday have to have the nice meal have to have all that stuff so when I stopped I, I stopped work for six weeks as well which is like you know I was working since I was 14 years old or even before really um and so for me that was just the most frightening thing probably the most frightening thing I did but the best thing I'd ever done so I'm not saying for everybody they have to stop work but I was in a position that I could and it was so mine was so extreme that that's the only way I think it would possibly work that I had to try work it out for myself and now I still like a nice holiday but I don't crave the holiday I would Mm. crave it I'd be like oh god I can't wait to get on holiday I can't wait and and I'd have to have something there yeah I craved it as this reward now I'm like I really like my life. Um, I'll go on holiday, but I'm not getting on holiday stressed out, exhausted. I'm getting there and I'm like, well, this is even nicer. Yeah. This is an even nicer life because now there's some sunshine. And now there's, you know, and I and I put things in place. So, you know, like there's a short transfer and there's an easy flight. And I pay a bit more for the flight that's got the nice times and anything that I can do to make my travel nice and simple and not not erratic I don't have that roller coaster of emotions and stuff so much now so I think for anybody who's looking is just start with that 10 minutes start yeah. with that 10 minutes but start looking and going am I running away from my life you know for entrepreneurs we literally do move the goalposts all the time nothing yeah. is ever enough I actually um I hope my husband's not watching this cause he knows. <laughs> but you know there was a long time where I was just I've been married for a long long time long long time we're not sure how long we debating it at the moment but um I thought he was an ass I literally thought he was an ass and then now I look back and I think no no I was the ass wow I was impossible to live with because nothing was ever enough all I talked about was work all the time this 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 Mm -hmm. and and the bit you know when you get to the 10k and you go I'm gonna make that 15 because I think for entrepreneurs and and for a lot of business people you're so driven you go, right, when I get to here, I'm going to maybe spend some time with my family or I'm going to step off. But you get there and you think, oh, I've got to X. And y is just there. So how about I just go to Y? And then you get to Y and you're like, oh, let's just go yeah. to Z. And then you go right the way around and you never stop. You literally- The sky's the limit, right? Yeah. 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 So then it's addictive. Yeah. You know? it it's, it's addictive. So you have to learn where to get that dopamine hit from that isn't that buzz. Mm. Is such I'm so. not at a
1: detriment of your own health yeah. and your love and your relationships and everything else. Well, it's been amazing hearing it all, Debbie, because I, I as I said earlier, your story is so inspiring. And I, I really hope everyone who is listening and watching does take on board that 10 minutes because we all have just 10 minutes. Mm. It don't, you don't have to make a massive shift, and you don't hopefully have to go through such a life-changing experience to make such a big shift. So, Debbie, you touched on it earlier, but we have a tradition at the show, which is where we let our guests Shout out to someone that you know, who you believe has an inspiring story that we should
0: have on the show next. So who is your go-to? I'm going to call out um, the lady who changed my life last year. So Sheena Shanti, she's a spiritual energy coach. I'm not a woo person. I was like woo curious, but she is normally spot on wow. and um, she was 17 years an alcoholic and then now being 18 years sober and, and doing her work. Fantastic. Well, so lovely. Yes, for you. Debbie has
1: given you a shout out, so we'll definitely be in touch and hopefully have her on the show soon. So, Debbie, thank you so much for being here. It has been amazing. Now, it's been a pleasure. Before you run off, because I know we do need to dash, and I know you are very much a busy person. I know that one of the things the reason we actually connected was because you also have your own show. Yes. And I really resonate with the show being whatever it takes because it's exactly what you've experienced. So, should our listeners, our viewers, want to find out more and listen and tune into your incredible guests as well, tell us about how we can find it.
0: So it's available on Spotify, Apple, all the normal places for the podcast. It's called Whatever It Takes. After I started sharing my story last year, people started sharing their stories with me. And in the spirit of not being a hard-faced coach, I was like, well, how can I get their stories out and let let them speak? Um, So I started the the podcast. And the theme of it is when life gives you lemons and you can only make lemonade. And so that's their stories. And they're incredible. Incredible. Quite Uh humbling. So...
1: Fantastic. Well, I, I find it amazing because as soon as you as soon as you go through an experience like yourself, it's about how can we help others? How can you expand it like what I've done with Inspired By, what you've done with whatever it takes. So thank you so much, Debbie, for sharing thank us you. with everything. It's been amazing. It's been fun. Oh, good. And no doubt this will not be the last time. So hope you have all enjoyed it from home as well, whether you are watching on our YouTube channel or if you are listening on all of the regular podcast channels. If you are watching on YouTube, I'd love it if you could share with us in the comments what's one of the most inspiring things that Debbie shared with you today. What's the one golden nugget or what we like to call mic drop moment that you found most inspiring? Type it in the comments and I cannot wait to read them. If you are tuning in on any of the regular podcast platforms, if you're on Apple, Spotify or anywhere else, do make sure that if you haven't already, you have subscribed to the show because the bigger the show, the bigger the guests and the more inspirational stories I could bring to you. That's all we have time for to now. I'll see you next week. <laughs>